It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. It is Thursday, February 12th, 2009. Got a good program lined up for you today. be interesting. Got more news about uh, persecution of Christians in the UK. It seems like uh, these stories are every day now. I'm hoping this trend uh, turns around, but uh, the story I got to read to you today specifically is one that's uh, not so good. Got some good listener email. Uh, thank you for tuning in to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Rosebro, and I'm your servant in Jesus Christ. Here at Fighting for the Faith, we dish up a daily dose of biblical discernment. And our job on a daily basis is to compare what's being said out there in the name of Christianity and compare it to the Word of God. Is what you're hearing biblical? Is what you what you are hearing true Christianity? Or is it, uh, well, you know, something else? And uh, the something else comes about when you compare the, what's being said and it doesn't line up. Now, the source of uh, the something else could be just about anything. It could be somebody's opinion. It could be somebody's feelings or somebody preaching on their so-called experiences. Or it could be philosophy or it could be theologizing or truthiness dressed up as Christianity. Uh, But the reality is is that if it's not biblical, if it's not not squaring with the Word of God, uh, it's not Christianity. So we've got a good program lined up today. We've got some listener email. We're going to talk a little bit about the rapture. Uh, got, check this headline out, the Vatican, the the Vatican, you know, the Catholic Church, they are uh, basically saying that uh, we shouldn't have opposed Darwinism. Really? Yeah, I I don't know if you knew that, but we shouldn't be opposing Darwinism. Apparently, they've, uh, Darwinism and the Catholic Church have have kissed and made up, and and now they can walk down the primrose path together, uh, because, you know, evolutionary theory, it, 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 I mean, it works so perfectly with Genesis 1 and 2. You know, what's the point in believing in a God if your God's not actually powerful enough to create? Well, I think, didn't John Paul say that things do evolve? Well, we know they do. I mean... Microevolution is absolutely true. There is different things that happen within the same species. John, you've seen both of my dogs, right? Yes. Okay, now, uh, we've got Cookie, who is... A very old uh, mix between a, a Labrador Retriever and a, and a German Shepherd, right? She, we call her Mad-Eye Cookie because she's got glaucoma and her eye looks kind of crazy right now. Okay, so Cookie is this big, overweight, lab-looking dog, right? You know, they say that, uh, they say that dogs and their owners look a lot alike. All right, so uh, that apparently Cookie's my dog. And then we wait, have... Wait, wait, Ma- Mad-Eye, is that the Harry Potter reference? Yeah, Matt, it's a, from Mad-Eye Moody. And then I've got this small dog, this small dog who's a mix between a poodle and a West Highland Terrier. Westy Poo is what they call them. And his name is Max, and he's the exact polar opposite looking kind of thing compared to Cookie. But they're both the same species, right? Right. Okay. So, yeah, there's evolution and change and different things that happen within the same species, but we've never seen a bat turn into a lizard or a squirrel turn into a cat. That, that, that's never happened, okay? And, um, in fact, 
we'll we'll have to get to this story a little bit later on. So apparently the Vatican, you know, uh, um, the Catholic Church and Darwinism have made up and they're kissed they've kissed and and now we it's okay. They we should they shouldn't have ever. You know, man, just you you read stories like that you just want to scream. Anyway, so and then we've got a today we've got a Carrie Shook sermon that we're going to review. Carrie Shook uh, pastor of Fellowship of the Woodlands there in the north part of Houston, uh, in Texas. And, uh, you know, this, this is kind of an up and coming star in the purpose driven ranks. And, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll get, I'll grant him this. At least he's not chewing everybody out like Gary Lamb and, uh, um, Perry Noble and now Tad Grandstaff. Um, <laughs> for a purpose driven guy, he sure does seem polite. You know, and so I'm very thankful for polite, purpose-driven pastors. But we picked this particular sermon because this one demonstrates an example of how not to use the scriptures. Yesterday, we uh, we did a, a sermon review from uh, Pastor Rex Quando. Uh, that's Bill Shear from Guts Church there in Oklahoma, and uh, basically he uh, <clears throat> preached a sermon whereby uh, you're supposed to have divine health, and if you're not, you know, if, if you're sick and health, and you're not. You you can claim health for yourself, and if you don't get it, it's because you don't have enough faith. So we uh, we we tore into that yesterday, but today we're gonna we're gonna talk about uh, how not to use the scripture. And I think that uh, Pastor Kerry Shook gives what I would consider a very very clear example of the wrong reading of scripture. And it, it, it's funny his interpretation runs on two tracks. One track is actually closer to what he should be focusing on, but the thing is he keeps just throwing that in and then. You know, and then going back to some other point that isn't even in the passage itself. So we'll be reviewing that. So we've got a good program lined it up up today. And by the way, gotta let you all know, I will not be in the studio tomorrow. At the crack of dawn, I will be flying from Southern California to the Chicago uh, area, hop in a rental car, and drive to Naperville, Illinois, a suburb of Chicago. Uh, where I will be the conference. One of the conference speakers, Todd Wilkin and myself, are, are both conference speakers at the very first uh, John the Steadfast uh, conference. Brothers of John the Steadfast is a uh, Lutheran organization, and uh, tomorrow night I'm going to be hosting. I guess it's called a, a No Pietists Allowed party. I'm not sure what that means, but you know we'll, we'll find out. <laughs> so uh, if you're in the Chicago area and you, and you'd like to. Uh, Come and see me in person. I don't know why you would want to do that. Um, but if, if for whatever reason you want to, you can. I will be in uh, Naperville, Illinois, uh, for you know, uh, February 13th and 14th. I fly back Saturday night, so that's, that'll be all kinds of fun. All right, uh, moving along to listener email. Okay. First of all, I got an email from Tara McClanahan. Now, I'm not sure where she's from. That's okay. When you send in your emails, it always helps. You know, you know if you if you like, you know, tell me what part of the the country you're from. I I do like to know that. Um, you know, although I could call the NSA. You know, I think there's some old Bush administration guys there that are still spying on the United States. So we could uh, we could track you down if we needed to. That was a joke. All right, it says hi, Chris. I I discovered your radio show about a month ago, and I've been trying to catch up, listening to all the programs from the beginning. I am up to November, and in one of the shows I listened to today, you mentioned you do not believe in the rapture and that there is no biblical basis for this. I grew up in the Word of Faith uh, movement, but after the death of my father from cancer, funny, yesterday we used that as a hypothetical, uh, Tara is writing, and she actually lived out the very horrible scenario that we 
we played, you know, we, we discussed yesterday. She said, listen to this. She says, my father died of cancer. I knew that this was not the truth of scripture. We struggled with the argument that he wasn't healed because we didn't have enough faith. It's awful. It's terrible. Can you imagine your father is dying and some well-meaning person who believes false doctrine is sitting in there telling you, well, if you just had enough faith, your father wouldn't be dying of cancer. Yikes, man. Anyway, she asked this question. She says, can I cause bodily injury to the one that started that whole bag of malarkey? No, you can't. And let me say this. This this is an important uh, and something that's important as to how we as Christians need to approach this the situation. The scripture is clear that we do not battle against flesh and blood. Those people whom we are in contact with who are following false doctrine, as well meaning as they are and as wrong as they are, our battle is not with them; it's for them. They are not our enemies. The devil is our enemy. They are our enemies only in so much as they are spreading false doctrine, but it's our job to love them and tell them the truth. And so rather than causing bodily injury to the person who told you that your father would be alive and wouldn't die if you just had enough faith, instead you can go to that person and say, you know, I, I now that my father has passed, now that you know this is all over with, you know, I, I feel like I need to come and talk to you in Christian love and offer you my forgiveness because I I don't know if you realize this, but what you did hurt me terribly. And I'm 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 I want you to know I've forgiven you, and I do want you to know that in love, you need to know that that doctrine that you're believing is false, and it's hurting other people. And therefore, out of love for you, I want to tell you the truth. I want to show you what Scripture says regarding this. And I want to, and I, my prayer for you is, is that you'll repent of this false doctrine and instead let your mind be transformed, renewed by what scripture teaches. That's really our attitude. That's the attitude we need to take. Um, you know, so at times, you know, on this program, there's, there's some crazy things that we play. There's some crazy things that we listen to and, and, you know, and we roll our eyes and at times we laugh. One of the things I enjoy about doing the show is that I do laugh because if I don't laugh, I cry. You know, there, there's, <laughs> it is that way. And here's the deal. I got an email from somebody today who was kind of complaining about the fact that I laugh so much on the show, you know, and that, you know, the devil's the origin of these false doctrines. I agree. Why are you laughing? Why? Because if sometimes you show something to be false and powerless by laughing at it. You know, if there's one thing that we've learned here in America is that uh, is that we can we Americans are really snarky. And this goes all the way back to, you know, the, what is it? Uh, Johnny Carson and the stand up comics and, and and the guys on the television who can see through the the spin and the malarkey that our politicians are feeding us. And just sim applying simple logic can go. This doesn't add up, right? And what happens is when you can laugh at a problem, then you can you can you know if you can laugh at something, then you can see the for what it is. It, it's powerless at that point. So one of the reasons why we laugh is because, you know, hey, it makes something powerless. Plus, I I think of that great prophet from the Old Testament, Elijah. Remember him? Yeah. Mount Carmel showdown between uh, prophets of Baal and Elijah, the uh, solo prophet of God, right? Okay, and uh, it, it's an interesting showdown. You know, Elijah wasn't 
he w- apparently wasn't wearing his "What Would Jesus Do" bracelet because what happened is is that at the showdown that occurred on Mount Carmel, Elijah had the audacity, okay, not only to challenge these guys to a showdown to the death. You know, the 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 the, the goal here was is that they would set up two altars and sacrifice animals and uh, and then pray to their god and the god that answered by fire. That was the true god, right? And so he went ahead and let the prophets of Baal go first because there were so many of them. You know, he being the solo prophet of God, it was going to take him some time to construct his altar and get everything ready, right? So uh, while he's preparing his altar, the prophets of Baal had finished their their altar, had slaughtered their animal, and everything was ready. All that all that Baal needed to do was, uh, I'm sorry, it's Baal. It's Baal needed to do was answer by fire, you know, from for their pleas. And so they wailed and went on and prayed for hours, and there was no answer. And what, what did Elijah do? He, oh, it's terrible, but it's inspiring for me. He literally looks over them and says, shout louder. Maybe your God's asleep. Or maybe he's on a journey. And in and, and the English, we actually lose some of the crass. Actually, we lose all of the crassness. There's this one phrase in the English that says, maybe he's turned aside. And that's not what it says in the Hebrew. Uh, the, the, the idea in the Hebrew is, is maybe he's relieving himself on the toilet. You know, busy, preoccupied. And so you have Elijah literally mocking these guys, right? So in some senses, I look to Elijah as my inspiration, and I find that it's helpful to mock things that should be mocked. Uh, we don't mock everything, but, you know, at times that's, the, that's what's called for. And I have the godly example of the great prophet Elijah, who, by the way, appeared with Jesus and Moses on the Mount of Transfiguration. So who am I to knock him and say he was wrong for doing such a thing? <laughs> John's looking at me like, I don't know if that logic works. <laughs> Anyway, um, so Tara, coming back. No, we don't want to cause bodily injury to the person. And by the way, you know, dreaming about, fantasizing about causing bodily injury to a person who's wronged you like that, we call that the sin of murder. Okay? You've murdered that person literally in your heart. It is a sin for which you need to repent. You are wrong in doing that. And I have great news for you. Christ has died even for that sin receive his forgiveness and take the forgiveness that Christ is offering you even for that sin of murder and offer it to the person who fed you that malarkey about the fact that you're the reason why your father was dying of cancer because was because he didn't have enough faith now let's get on to the business of the email itself she says my heart's desire is to found my beliefs on the scripture alone so I am curious as to your biblical reasoning that there will be no rapture. My whole my whole life it has been just uh, it has been a given. So I'm interested to hear your viewpoint. If it if it has already been discussed in a previous radio program, it has. But I'll answer it here. She says I would appreciate your pointing me to it. But uh, so anyway, I'm, basically, Tara, what it comes down to on the on the doctrine of the rapture, there is no clear passage of scripture that teaches it. And so I work from a biblical hermeneutic, uh, the, the, the basic philosophy, or not philosophy, or thinking behind the hermeneutic that I work from, is something called the historical grammatical method. And that is, is that we interpret Scripture historically and grammatically. We understand the historical context that, in which things were written. We also understand that grammatically, the words matter. It, you know, and that's the point. The Holy Spirit inspired the very words of Scripture themselves. And that being the case, um, you don't create a doctrine unless it, it is clearly demonstrable and 
teachable from the scriptures without any vagaries involved in it. So um, now I know that the language here doesn't make it, you know, that I've got people uh, arguing with me on how to do this. Uh, The Bible doesn't teach that God likes toasted cheese sandwiches. For those of you in America, like myself, we could say grilled cheese sandwiches. That's the preferred uh, way of saying it. But, uh, but see, so if I were to make a doctrine and said that God's favorite food is grilled cheese sandwiches, you would have to say, well, wait a second, Chris. Um, what are you basing that on? Where is that taught clearly in the scriptures? Now, I may be able to twist some things out of context and make it appear like God likes grilled cheese sandwiches. But um, unless I can actually point you to a passage where it's clearly spelled out, it says, I am the Lord your God. I brought you out of out of the land of slavery. I brought you out of uh, out of Egypt. And uh, brought you, you know, into from the wilderness into the land of Israel. And I want you to worship me by bringing me grilled cheese sandwiches because that's my favorite food. Now, without a passage like that, you can't really make make a doctrine that way. The doctrine of the rapture fails on that very level. There is no clear passage of scripture that teaches the doctrine of the rapture. There are passages when you take them out of context make it appear like maybe there is a doctrine of the rapture, but the reality is go back and look at the text themselves and ask yourself, is this text clearly teaching a doctrine of the rapture? The answer is no. Furthermore, we have passages of scripture that do specifically teach the doctrine regarding Christ's return in glory. Okay, let me give you one for example. Uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, okay? Paul writing in verse 13, but we do not want you to be uninformed brothers about those who are asleep that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus Christ, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. Fallen asleep is a euphemism for death. Okay. Those of you who've crumped, you've died, you've kicked the bucket. You're taking a dirt nap, you know, things like that. Um, For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him or bring back with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel and with the sound of the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. Um, Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Okay, here in, this is just one example that that I can cite from scriptures. And, uh, And this clearly shows that when the Lord returns, he's, it's not going to be an invisible return. It's not going to be a secret return. I mean, it's hard to keep something a secret when you got the voice of the archangel and the sound of the trumpet of God blaring. Okay. I, I would imagine those are pretty loud. <laughs> just, <laughs> just, just, going, just going from my gut here, okay? And this passage here talking about how we, we will be caught up together with Christ in the clouds also then fits perfectly with the gospel accounts where it talks about how when the Lord returns, two people will be in the field, one will be taken, another will be left. Two women will be grinding you know, flour, one will be taken, another will be left. So this, this actually then explains that. So in Scripture, there is no passages that, cl- that clearly 
teach that there will be a, an invisible return of Christ and we get taken out. And, 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 and then, and then after that, you know, there'll be this tribulation period at which we'll end and then we'll all be taken up. Instead, I think the scriptures clearly teach that Christians are going to stick around until the very day when Christ returns. In fact, this passage even says so. Okay. Uh, It says, for this, we declare to you by a word from the Lord that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord. Okay. Um, just the, there's, there's a Latin phrase that, that we talk about when we're interpreting scripture. And one is and that, that phrase is the sensus naturalis. What is the natural sense of the passage? And so when we look at just the natural sense of what Paul is saying, listen to this for, we declare to you by a word from the Lord that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. It makes it sound like there that the apostle Paul actually believed that there will be Christians who will be left until the coming of the Lord. And the funny thing is, is what helps us out here is, is there's many scholars who believe and have written to the effect that at the time Paul wrote this epistle, he really believed that he would see the return of Christ in his lifetime. Okay? And so he, he was basically expecting to be one of those people who were around who were left until the Lord came back. Okay? So that, that plays into this rather well. Plus, we have other passages of Scripture. Now, as somebody who was brought up in a church that believed in the doctrine of the rapture, the other part of this was is that, you know, that Christians, the whole idea behind it was is that Satan couldn't do his thing here on earth. You know, the Antichrist supposedly, or the man of lawlessness supposedly being the devil incarnate, if you would, you know, basically pretending to be Jesus Christ himself and a God and expecting people to worship him. Um, the idea was is that he couldn't really get away with all of that unless he moved the church aside first. I mean, that's that was one of the rationale given to me as to why the rapture was so important. You know, because uh, if you know, how can the devil, you know, have his heyday like that without the church opposing him? <laughs> well, um, yeah. Well, um, there's this little problem, and that is is that uh, there's this thing that precedes the return of Christ, and I don't know if you've heard of it. But I would like to remind you of it. This is a little bit of a side note, so this is what we call bonus information. And, um, and that is, is that Paul, the Apostle Paul, writes about something that is called the apostasia. Sounds terrible, right? The apostasy. Well, it turns out um, Paul in 2 Thessalonians writes about, um, about the last days. And here's what he says. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 starting at verse 1. Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus and our being gathered together with him. Again, it, it sounds like he's expecting to be around when he comes and us being gathered, that, that gathered up in the clouds when he returns. Again, the census naturalis is Paul was expecting to live until that time and be around when, when Christ showed up, which means that that precludes this idea that he was expecting to be raptured out. Okay, And where did Paul get his doctrine from? directly from Jesus Christ, directly. Okay, and it says, Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus and our being gathered together to him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has already come. Apparently there was somebody back there teaching the secret rapture doctrine. (laughs) You know, oh, he's already come and you've been left behind. 
that that you can read that into that it's actually it works um okay let no one deceive you in any way for that day will not come unless the apostasy comes first now in the esv that word apostasy is translated as rebellion for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed the son of destruction Lovely. Okay. Now, um, apostasy, uh, the apostasia, interesting word, defiance of established system or authority is what the word itself means. Rebellion or abandonment or a breach of faith. Okay. Now, the question that is supremely important, as we talked about last times, especially when it comes to the apostasy, where would this rebellion take place? Because, I mean, aren't all of us by nature rebels against God? The answer is yes. So um, what is he talking about when he's talking about the apostasy or the rebellion taking place? Answer, he's referring to a rebellion or apostasy within the church, okay? Where the church, the overall flavor of the church takes on a rebellious tone towards the things of God regarding Christ and sound doctrine and sound teaching and instruction and discipleship, and instead rebels against what God has given us to do and heads off and does their own thing. I tend to think that uh, that sounds a lot like what's going on today, but um, who knows when Christ is coming back. So anyway, I throw that in there. Um, But listen to this. Um, So uh, for that day will not come unless the rebellion or the apostasy comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed who is the son of destruction who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God proclaiming himself to be God. Do you not remember that when I was with you I told you these things and you know what is restraining him so that he may be revealed in his time? For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed from whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders and all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refused to love the truth and so be saved. Therefore, God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false, in order that they may be condemned who did not believe in the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. Frightening, isn't it? So regarding the doctrine of the rapture, I don't see it in Scripture. I think there's other passages like the ones I've just read you from Thessalonians where it is clear that the Apostle Paul expected to be there until the Lord returned. And there's other passages, even in the book of Revelation, that describe the, uh, let's just say, the tribulation that the Christian church gets to go through. And uh, it's not pretty. So, unless you can produce for me a clear passage of Scripture that teaches the doctrine of the rapture, I have to reject it as non-biblical. Now, I'm completely open to the idea that maybe, maybe I've just missed it. You know, I, I'm a human being. I, I have weaknesses. My eyesight's going out. You know, <laughs> well, maybe not that bad. But, you know, so if you can produce for me a clear passage of Scripture that teaches the doctrine of the rapture, then I, then I would have to reevaluate my position and, and basically say I, I want my 
doctrine and what I believe to be based upon God's word. So I'll repent of my lack of belief in the doctrine of the rapture when you show me the verses that clearly teach it. And this wasn't always your opinion. No, I was actually a strong advocate of the rapture for many years. And I had to change my opinion because I couldn't defend it biblically. In fact, there was other positions that were far more compelling once I really understood what God's word said. All right, we're up to our first break. We're going to take our first break. And when we come back... um, We'll continue with a little bit more listener email, and then we're going to talk about the um, the growing persecution of Christianity in the UK. Um, as somebody who reads the British newspapers and uh, gets email from across the the, uh, the pond now, I'm going to tell you uh, there's some stuff that's happening across the UK that really should give us pause, because one of the things we've seen is is that. Uh, there's certain politicians who really want to uh, bring what they're doing in the UK and in, and, in great, and in Europe here to the United States, especially as it pertains to diversity and things like that. And uh, it's not a good sign for uh, Christians. We'll put it that way. So if you would like to email me regarding anything you've heard so far on today's program, you can do so at talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. Talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. And we will be right back. Sissioprified religiosity won't save you. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> So the new pastor came in and shut down the Sunday school, uh, canceled the adult Bible study, no. dumped the hymnals, oh, sacked the choir, and put damn. in a praise band and started preaching sermons that sound like they could be preached or done on Dr. Phil's program. It's awful. I didn't expect a kind of purpose-driven inquisition. Nobody expects the purpose-driven inquisition. Our chief weapon is purpose. Purpose and vision. Vision and purpose are two weapons. Our purpose and vision and ruthless relevance are three weapons. Our purpose, vision, and ruthless relevance in an almost fanatical devotion to record are four weapons. Now, amongst our weaponry are such elements as purpose, vision. I'll I'll come in again. I didn't expect a kind of purpose-driven inquisition. Nobody expects a purpose-driven inquisition. Amongst our weaponry are such diverse elements as purpose, vision, ruthless relevance, and almost fanatical devotion to Rick Warren and nice Hawaiian shirts. Oh, damn. I can't say it. You'll have to say it. Uh, what? You'll have to say what the bit about our chief weapons are. Uh, I, I couldn't do that. <clears throat> I didn't expect a kind of purpose-driven inquisition. 
Nobody uh, expects. Uh, expects no. Nobody expects the um, purpose-driven inquisition. Uh, I, I know. I know. Nobody expects the purpose-driven inquisition. In fact, those who Our do chief ex- weapons are our chief weapons are um, purpose, uh, uh, vision. Okay. Okay. Stop. Stop. That, stop. That. Our chief weapons are purpose. Blah 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 blah. Youth, Pastor Rick. Read the charges. Dude, you're like hereby charged with being divisive and not following our program. That's enough! Now, how do you plead? Well, we're, we're innocent. innocent. Ha! 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 We'll soon change your mind about that! Hi, I'm Patrick Kyle, a founding partner of New Reformation Press. Just as the first Reformation rediscovered, reclaimed, and restated timeless truths from the Word of God, the mission of New Reformation Press is to reintroduce these truths to the contemporary church and culture. All of our resources are hand-picked to ensure that you have the best available biblical and doctrinal materials at your fingertips to help you grasp the treasures of the Reformation and deepen your own understanding of Christ and His work on your behalf. Browse our website at newreformationpress.com. We offer books, CDs, downloadable MP3s, and our very own line of Reformation-themed clothing. Check out the audio presentation, Bible in an Hour. Absolutely the finest overview of the scriptures that the staff at New Reformation Press has ever heard. Also, Dr. Rod Rosenblatt's presentation, The Gospel for Those Broken by the Church. A stunning 200-proof presentation of the gospel for those who have been hurt by the church and discouraged as a result of false teaching. Available exclusively through NewReformationPress.com. Again, that's NewReformationPress.com. Yeah, those poor brothers of John the Steadfast, they don't know what they've done. They've invited me to come speak at their event. In Chicago. Yeah. You know, it's not a great place to be in February. You know, I will say this. I've traveled around the United States quite a bit, okay? Um, done it on business trips, sales trips, things like that. And one of the things I've noticed is is that it might be that I'm not really overweight, okay? Bear with me for a second. I know that according to all of the medical charts, I am, okay? Five foot nine ten depending on what time of the day you measure me 240 pounds you know that's that's overweight so here's the deal though is that there are parts of the country that i've traveled to for instance virginia okay where it seems like the guys that i see just you know in the airport on the street you know down at the at the local restaurants all have about my girth or just a little bit more they they're like big teddy bears right Whereas here in Southern California, it seems like all the guys are, you know, I don't know. It looks like they're anorexic. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, at least compared Girly to me. men. Yeah, right. And so the thing is, is that I, I, maybe not, I'm not overweight. I'm just living in the wrong part of the country. <laughs> <laughs> I, rather than sticking out in other parts of the country, I might just blend in. You need to move the bubble. Right. <laughs> anyway, the terrible justification. <laughs> well, you know, Mike Warnke had said you can always tell when a guy's on the level when his bubble's in the middle. Really? Yeah. Yeah. Then I'm dead on the money in the <laughs> level, what you just said. <laughs> 
I want to remind you that uh, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported. Uh, that means that uh, we need your support in order to continue to bring you this important radio outreach. And, uh, you know, we believe me, we're doing our part to uh, keep our financial footprint small. And uh, if you're growing in Christ, if you are growing in your understanding of biblical discernment, biblical doctrine, sound doctrine, how to defend the Christian faith, and how to think critically about things that people are telling you in the name of Christianity, then uh, we would like you to consider partnering with us. Help us continue to bring this radio ministry to you and uh, and to others. And you can do that by uh, several different ways. One in particular is that you can send a check to Fighting for the Faith at Post Office Box 791, San Juan Capistrano, California, zip code 92693. Or you can log on to fightingforthefaith.com, click on one of, one of the many donate buttons. We have them all over the place to remind people. Uh, <laughs> but uh, click on one of the donate buttons and donate online via PayPal. You can do it instantly. And another thing that you can do is you uh, every, at Pirate Christian Radio they offer we offer a, uh, a a book of the month. And our book for this month is Matt Matt Harrison's Christ Have Mercy. Let me tell you, fantastic book about sanctification and putting your faith into action that never loses sight of the cross. And uh, strongly recommend this book. So, um, you know, that, you know, purchasing that does help, uh, help out Pirate Christian Radio as well as Fighting for the Faith. So just wanted to let yeah. you know that. And Pirate Christian Radio goes all day. Yeah, we do. Yeah. Um, what's funny is, is that um, the way I built Pirate Christian Radio, my, my first idea for it was that let's, let's do it like cable television. Okay. I don't know if you've, you guys have ever watched cable television, but they don't have – you know, 24 hours of original programming every day. They program pretty much new shows during prime time. And so they've maybe got, what, five or six hours of original programming a day, and then the rest of the stuff is repeat stuff that they've done as well as infomercials. Well, we don't have any infomercials here. Oh, could you imagine tuning into Fighting for the Faith and, have, you know, learning how to get a free set of Ginsu knives or something like that? <laughs> I would have to hurt me So <laughs> if that ever happened. But uh, so what we do is we shoot for seven to eight hours of original content every day, and then we try to loop it three times. And the idea there is is that it allows uh, Pirate Christian Radio to uh, really be picked up around the world. And funny enough, we actually have a very strong listening audience outside of the United States. We have a great listening audience in Great Britain, in France, uh, the South America, South Africa, uh, and uh, Australia and New Zealand. And so it's really encouraging to see that people are listening to Pirate Christian Radio overseas. And the idea there is, is that so if, you, if you're at work in Australia, you're sitting in a, in a cubicle in Australia, I'm sure the cubicles are much cooler in Australia. And I don't know if you know this, but the cubicles go the other way in Australia than they do here. <laughs> that, was, that was bad. Yeah, that, was bad. <laughs> that was terrible. <laughs> So you know you listen you can you it, it, the broadcast they just repeat so that it's like you you know you're hearing it the way it should be heard so yeah but we have about four hours of of uh, sermons right. and lectures correct and then four hours of live correct and uh, we're we're the the ho the the host of uh, White Horse in Classic in fact we're getting ready to bring on the whole uh, Christless Christianity series we're going to put that into the rotation I think it's starting in March we're going to be adding that into the rotation so. Uh, you know, stay tuned. So, and and that's the other thing. We're not afraid of reruns. You know, on some some of the programs, it's they do it on television. Why can't we do it on radio? <laughs> it's not like it, it, here's the fun thing about Christianity. It teaches timeless truth. Okay, 
uh, Christianity is like astronomy. You know, you study the stars, the stars are there. They've always been there, you know, and you can learn, you know, and you can learn a deeper information about astronomy, but the information was all there to be discovered in the first place. It's nothing really new. It's you, you, anyway. All right. We're going to continue. Uh, got a couple of good emails here. Hang on a second here. What did I do with my good emails? <laughs> Hold on. Found it. Okay, Crystal from uh, Indianapolis writes. She says, um, talking about the personal increase of Paul, she was uh, responding to the obsession sermon from goat herder uh, Chris Songson, motivational speaker and goat herder Chris Songson, which really was probably one of the worst. It was like sitting through an insurance seminar or or somebody trying to sell you a timeshare. It was awful. But, you know, he was making the point that, you know, he didn't really talk about repentance and the forgiveness of sins. That was not really there. Instead, it was make these decisions and God will, you'll have access to miracles and you wouldn't have access to miracles if you didn't. You'll have a life of significance because if you don't, if you don't uh, make Jesus Lord of your life, you can't have significance. And he was constantly referring to Paul as some example of a guy who had this incredible adventure and a life of significance and, and, a, and a life of increase. Yeah, I mean, who would turn down a life of increase? I mean, man, I'm, you know, I wouldn't do that anyway. Yeah, so um, Crystal, she's just fired off some scriptures at me. Apparently, uh, she doesn't seem to think that uh, Songson's sermon was very biblical. So she says, the personal increase of Paul. She writes, Philippians one twenty nine: for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Oh. D- Come on, that's passe and old-fashioned. To die is gain. Oh, man. What good is a gospel if you can't have the goods now, right? (laughs) I'm sorry, I'm playing devil's advocate. Philippians 4, 11 through 13. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am in to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound, and in any and every circumstance I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger and abundance and need and... I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Oh, come on. That doesn't sound like an adventure. Who wants to have decrease, you know, you know circumstance where you don't have lots and lots of goods, right? I mean, it, 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 isn't Jesus supposed to solve my problems? Why would I, what's the point of, of receiving Jesus as my savior if, if tomorrow I'm going to be poor? <laughs> That's the logic, isn't it? I mean, apparently I'm doing something wrong. If, if, what happens if I lose my job? What happens if you lose your job? Are we to assume that somehow you've done something wrong? You don't have enough faith because now you're not experiencing a life of increase? What if what if the United States goes into a Great Depression again? You know, where 20, 25% of the population is out of work for, for years and years on end. And you just happen to be one of those unfortunate people stuck in the uh, unemployment line, living off of uh, handouts and, and, and people who are helping through soup kitchens but can't offer you a job. I mean, what if that happens to you and you're stuck in that situation for three, four, five years at a time? Are we to just assume that you're doing something wrong, that you don't love Jesus enough? Because obviously you're not experiencing a life of increase, you're experiencing a life of decrease. But see, that's the point Paul is saying. He says that now, speaking of being in need, I've learned to, in whatever situation, to be content. Can you be content if you lose everything? Paul could. Why? Because 
He understood that this life isn't it. Here to live is Christ and to die is gain. Here he pours himself out as a drink offering. Here he labors for preaching the gospel and, and bringing souls to Christ. Literally. Right? I think he made the right, right decisions there. <clears throat> Colossians 1, 24-25. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. Oh, you know, again, Paul is just out of touch here. Rejoice in sufferings. You don't expect us to really... Yeah, actually, that's kind of the whole point. Anyway, she says that's not a complete list. But, uh, Crystal, thank you for the list. I think it was very relevant. Uh, Michael Ritzman, the uh, the guy who practices that dark art known as accounting, he, he, he writes, Dear Chris Johnson... Okay. <laughs> that's just funny. <laughs> it's so far off. You know, it's really weird. That's my wife's maiden name. Uh-huh. So it kind of works in a very weird way. He says, I was impressed by the flurry of vocabulary activity during yesterday's Virgin Mary sketch. We were talking about how the, uh, the Catholic Church is cracking down on Marian apparitions, right? You know? And she says, overheard during your monologue were such priceless gems as Virgin Visions, Bogus Explosion, uh, Vaticum Dionysia, uh, Dio, I can't even pronounce it, Diocesan, and my personal favorite, Stigmata. <laughs> Say what you want about the Roman Catholics. They've got some great sounding words. <laughs> and he says, thanks for providing with a perfect mixture of relevant topics and obscure terminology. P.S., Stop colluding with your dehumanized spirit, man. It's bad for his womb. <laughs> That's a great email. You know what's funny is is that uh, one of my habits is is to read the British papers as I prepare for uh, as I prepare for the program. And one of the reasons I do it is because you know I, the British papers give us a different view of the world than the American papers do. They have a far more global way of looking at things, but the vocabulary. The the articles used in those British papers, I, I've decided that I should make English my second language. You figure that one out. <laughs> I mean, British English. Well, you can just call an American. You speak American. Yeah, I, I are good. <laughs> yeah, okay. <laughs> so yeah, apparently, I speak American, but uh, you know those British people, you know, they got they, their vocabulary is amazing. Anyway, um, moving along, I did get an email from Gervais Nicholas Edward Charmley, and he was pointing me to this uh, this headline from the Telegraph in the UK. And uh, I don't know if I'm going to have time to read his email, but he he had a good point, and I'll, I'll see if I can make a similar one. But uh, he's the one who sent me the link on this one. I woke up this morning; it was there, sitting in my inbox. And uh, should we do the uh, the news update music? Please. Okay, hang on. I know John likes that. All right, let me let me get to the news update music. It's uh, under this one. Here we go. All right, here we go. Vintage news music, just for John. All right, headline reads: Primary school receptionist facing sack after daughter talks about Jesus to a classmate. Now, this falls under the category of the growing persecution of Christians in the UK and in Europe. Um, again. Um, sack, by the way, the British, the Brits, they, this is a great word. You know, they didn't get, fu- somebody didn't get fired. He got sacked. Okay. So it says that somebody, so basically this woman is being, she's facing losing her job, being sacked because her daughter had the audacity to talk about Jesus to a classmate. 
Um, Subheadline reads, uh, a primary school receptionist, Jenny Kane, whose five-year-old daughter was told uh, was told off for talking about Jesus in class, is now facing the sack for seeking support from her church. I am not making this up. Remember, I told you last week it wasn't a it wasn't a win that that nurse was able to keep her job. Um, again, my 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 theory that I'm working from here is is that the the media has an agenda. They can do things. They can get people to think that there's a law in place when there isn't. Why have a politician write a law against Christianity when the media can just take somebody out and spank them really good, mess them up, pillory them, destroy their image in the media? you know, and single them out and just destroy them. I mean, that has the same impact as actually writing a law. Eventually people begin to get nervous about things, you know, because they don't want to be singled out. So Mrs. Kane sent a private email to close friends to ask for prayers for her daughter after she was called into the school where she worked in, in Crediton, Devon, to be reprimanded. Her daughter, Jasmine, has been overheard by a teacher discussing discussing heaven and God with a friend and has been pulled to one side and told off. Mrs. Kane contacted 10 close friends from her church by email, but the message fell into the hands of Gary Reed, the headmaster of Lanscore Primary School, where she works. The 38-year-old mother of two is now being investigated for professional misconduct for allegedly making claims against the school and its staff. Really? Mrs. Mrs. Kane has been told she may be disciplined and was warned she could face dismissal, otherwise known as the sack. Her case is being supported by the Christian Institute, who said Mrs. Kane was the latest example of a Christian being persecuted by society. It, it seems like this is happening every week now in the UK. Uh, last week, nurse uh, Caroline Petrie, that's what I said last week, was told she can go back to work uh, having been suspended for two months for offering to pray for a patient. Yesterday, Mrs. Kane said both her daughter and son were confused about what to say about their faith. She told the Daily Telegraph, I think there is something about what I what I represent, about what the three of us represent. This action that has been taken against me, how it has escalated, how trapped I feel, it's overwhelming. The speed at which it has got it has got a place where I'm being investigated for misconduct and could be dismissed is too sh- is shocking. Mrs. Kane, who has worked part-time at the school for two and a half years, describes herself as a quiet Christian who would never force her beliefs on others. Well, see, that's the thing. Just sharing your faith now as a Christian in some places, that's the equivalent of forcing your faith on others. How dare you tell me about Jesus dying for my sins? You're calling me a sinner? You're forcing your religion down my throat. <sighs> no, I'm actually not. If you would like me to, I will. Hold still. This is really going to hurt. <laughs> <laughs> Hang on. <clears throat> but she said she was angry about the way she had been treated. Um, I felt embarrassed that a private prayer email was read by the school. It felt like someone had gone through my personal prayer diary. See, this whole, this whole story reeks something's wrong here. My question is, who's the person who sent it to Gary Reed? I mean, this woman, her daughter was, you know, apparently going to be reprimanded for sharing her faith with a schoolmate. You know, in the UK, it's okay if you can, you, you, you can tell a schoolmate, you can tell a child that 
uh, about evolution. You can say that you're an accident, that there's really no meaning to life and there's really no purpose to it whatsoever. In fact, you're just some random collection of cells that just happened to form by chance, you know, uh, over a, a bazillion years. And, and your great, 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 great grandmother was really a baboon. You know, you could tell that to uh, a child in the UK, but don't dare tell them that you were created by God and that God accomplished that task of creation in six days. And that Jesus Christ is God in human flesh who came to earth to die for your sins. Wouldn't want to tell them that because you can get in trouble now. You can be reprimanded. You could be sacked. <sighs> yeah, this is really, really frightening. Um, okay, so that's one example here. Um, let me find, see if I have the secondary story. Um, that's okay. Yeah, this one's actually not from Great Britain. Uh, listen to this. Um, where is this from? Uh, I want to say this is from one of the Scandinavian countries, like Norway. Um, here, here we go. Uh, the headline reads, Male pastor fined for refusing to work with a female colleague. Actually, that would be a quote, female pastor. Since the Bible doesn't actually acknowledge the existence of such a thing. Um, <laughs> interesting here. Um, the Kuvola court appeal has held a lower court's decision that Pastor Ari Noro pay 320 euros in fines for refusing to work with a female colleague. The case is a precedent in that it is the first time the courts were forced to rule on religious freedom and equality in modern Finnish evangelical Lutheran church. This is in Finland, sorry. So apparently um, now the courts, the, the government is getting involved in church affairs and has fined a pastor for refusing to work with a female pastor in the Finnish evangelical Lutheran church. In the spring of 2007, Noro refused to work with a female pastor just before a church service and I can't pronounce that name. Hi, Vinka. Anyway, during the incident in question, Minister Ari Noro, a guest preacher in Hyvinka, told his uh, local colleague, Pastor uh, Petra... Oh, man, this is a foreign name. I, I do not know Finnish. Pohajanarito, uh, that, uh, that she would have to let him perform this church service alone. Noro then asked her to leave his side just minutes before the scheduled service was begin uh, was set to begin. Noro has maintained it is impossible for him to perform his duties alongside a woman and has demanded that charges against him be dropped. Why would he just say such a thing? Because it's not biblical. There's no such thing as a, as a woman pastor. It, the, the animal doesn't exist. Anyways, so what was the solution? They sought a legal solution, and the court fined him 320 euros for refusing to work alongside of a female pastor. Isn't that great? Um, yeah, man, it just seems like Christians around the world, especially now in Europe, and believe me when I tell you, um, what's happening in Europe, th these, this agenda in Europe, uh, it's going to hit our shores if it hasn't already here in the U.S., I mean, there's some some inklings of what's you know of this getting here, but uh, this it, the United States is not immune to this. And then we have this wonderful uh, headline from the uh, from the te Telegraph in the U.K. Here we go: The Vatican claims Darwin's theory of evolution is compatible with Christianity. Okay, so my question is. Uh, uh, Monsignor Rav Ravasi, who is the one who is making this claim. Um, what did, was your great-great-great-grandmother a baboon? 
Uh, the Vatican has admitted that Charles Darwin's theory of evolution should not have been dismissed and claimed it is compatible with the Christian view of creation. Uh, no, it's not. Archbishop uh, Gianfranco Ravasi, head of the Pontifical Council for Culture, said while the church had been hostile to Darwin's theory in the past, the idea of evolution could be traced to St. Augustine and St. Thomas Aquinas. Father Giuseppe Tanzella Nitti, professor of theology at the Pontifical Santa Croce, Croce University in Rome, added that 4th century theologian St. Augustine had never heard the term evolution, but knew that big fish eat smaller fish and forms of life had been transformed slowly over time. Uh, really? Augustine, the father of modern... Uh, hang on a second here. Just a little, Just a little critical thinking. Let's say for a second that Augustine believed in some proto form of e of evolution. Does that mean that it's Christianity? Don't think so, Chris. How many books of the Bible did Augustine write? Zero. Right. See, that's the that's the catch. See, what happens is is that uh, when Scripture alone is your authority, you don't have to worry about what Augustine said. If he contradicts Scripture, you can say, "I'm sorry, but Augustine was wrong." All right, we're going to take our second break, and when we come back, we'll continue with the news. We'll do a little bit of work in Mark chapter 10, and then we're going to get to a sermon by Carrie Shook, which I think is worth listening to for one reason and one reason only. It gives an example of how not to use the Bible. Now, the nice thing is that the sermon itself quotes a pretty large section of Scripture, but it's a good example of how to wrongly use the Scripture, and we'll get into that. Um, as we get into uh, in, into that sermon review. So it would be definitely worth listening to. So stay tuned. We will be right back. Unless your righteousness surpasses that of Rick Warren, you cannot be saved. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. This is the air I breathe. This is the air I breathe. I've had enough of this sissy, pansy, cannon photo written music you have the audacity to call worship. Men, put this entire girly praise band in the boo box. Let's wheel in the organ and get some real worship music underway. Ye be listening to Pirate Christian Radio. My local Christian bookstore just sells Jesus flock. Where can I find good material? We at NewReformationPress.com are committed to providing a hand-picked selection of books and teaching materials that educate, inform, and entertain while uniquely maintaining a relentless focus on the gospel. We believe that these forgotten doctrines and their scriptural emphases can not only enrich individual Christians and revive the church, but also address the deepest needs of our culture. 
Discover our growing library of resources by Dr. Rod Rosenblatt of the White Horse Inn radio program, including his powerful address, The Gospel for Those Broken by the Church, available exclusively at newreformationpress.com, or the big picture audio presentation, Bible in an Hour by Pastor Wade Butler. Learn the center and scope of redemptive history and scripture in just one hour. And of course, be sure not to miss our selection of t-shirts, gifts, and artwork as well. NewReformationPress.com. Finally, Reformation Theology Made Accessible. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith, and my name is Chris Roseborough, your servant in Jesus Christ, dishing up a daily dose of biblical discernment, keeping you apprised of what's happening in the world of religion, not just in the U.S. anymore, but around the world. See, we're new and improved. I, I can say that now, right? Wouldn't that be a good marketing ploy? Fighting for the Faith, new and improved. Well, it's a new show today. I <laughs> All right, continuing with our story here from the Telegraph in the UK regarding the Vatican claiming that Darwin's theory of evolution is now compatible with Christianity, we read that ahead of the papal-backed conference next month's marking of the 150th anniversary of Darwin on the origin of species, the Vatican is also set to play down the idea of intelligent design. The church, the Vatican, playing down intelligent design. Instead, we're going to go with unintelligent, random chance design uh folks if you would like to actually study up on this and there is a growing and a, it, it is getting huge a growing growing army of scientists who are completely abandoning uh the theory of evolution because there is no evidence to support it the whole thing is a myth it's scientifically it doesn't play out and there's no scientific evidence to support it a good primer on this topic is actually Lee Strobel's book. The name of the book is uh, The Case for a Creator. The Case for a Creator. He does a fantastic job of interviewing and summarizing the arguments from leading scientists who have defected from the evolutionary ranks. And uh, it definitely worth uh, definitely worth the read. So you can pick that up at Amazon.com. We don't have that in our bookstore, unfortunately. But uh, in fact, I listen to it on audiobooks. Uh, if you if you like if you like audio uh, books, go to Audible.com, become a member. It's worth listening to in your car. Uh, you'll you'll listen to that book and go. I can't believe anybody believes in evolution. That being the case, now the Vatican apparently is going to play down the idea of intelligent design. Well, too bad the scriptures play it up, um, which argues a higher power must be responsible for the complexities of life. The conference at the Pontifical Georgian University will discuss intelligent design to an extent, but only as a cultural phenomenon rather than a scientific or theological issue. (sighs) The wonders just never cease. Absolutely just never cease. Um, All right. We're going to switch gears, and we're going to now get into uh, the Gospel of Mark. We're in Mark chapter 10. And why are we reading through the Gospel of Mark? Why? Because I want you to be familiar with and understand these stories so that you can teach others. Uh, You know what? Teaching the Bible is not that hard. I think the most difficult part is lifting the pages while you're opening the book. 
you know, you you might you could potentially get a paper cut. Um, you know, because that's how dangerous it is. Um, open the book, read it, read it, mark it, learn it, inwardly digest it, memorize it, make yourself so familiar with the truth, and you are not going to fall for all the lies that are passing off as Christianity nowadays. So we start in Mark chapter 10, verse 1, and he, Jesus, left there and went to the region of of Judea, and beyond the Jordan, and the crowds gathered to him again. And again, as it was his custom, he taught them. Jesus was a teacher. He was a preacher. Apparently he didn't tell them to crack, you know, go get busy. What are you doing here listening to me? It continues, and the Pharisees came up in order to test him. Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? He answered them, well, what did Moses command you? Well, they said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. And Jesus said to them, well, because of your hardness of heart, he wrote this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. And the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but they are one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. Now, I know there's a lot of arguments running around the web today and around the media about uh, should Christians be opposed to homosexual marriage? Well, um, John, what do you think? Do you think Jesus was uh, telling us what marriage was like at the beginning? Yeah. Yeah, uh Uh-huh. So here's the deal. There's only one person whose opinion about marriage I care about, and that's Jesus's, and he had one. And here... He's talking about divorce, okay? And folks, one of the dumb arguments that's floating around there is, well, if you Christians are so opposed to gay marriage, shouldn't you also be opposed to divorce? Uh, That's a non sequitur. It's a stupid argument. It's a red herring because, of course, Christians understand that divorce is a sin. Jesus himself is not pro-divorce, okay? Jesus here is it has what I would consider probably the highest opinion of marriage that any human being out there had. And um, interesting, he says that he, first of all, confirms that God made people male and female. That's how God created them from the beginning, talking about the fact that God is the one who made you what you are. If you are a dude, God made you a dude. If you are a dudette, is that a word? A chick. If you were a chick, God made you a chick. Okay, God didn't make uh, God didn't make some cross between them. He, God created them male and female, and a father shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. The two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but they are one. And whatever God has joined together, let no man separate. That's Jesus's view of Scripture. In a nutshell, we continue. And in the house of the the disciples asked him again about this matter. And he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. And they were bringing little children to Jesus that he might touch them. And the disciples rebuked them. Interesting. Listen to what Jesus' view is on children. They were bringing children to him that he might touch them. And the disciples rebuked them and... When Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, Let the little children come to me. Do not hinder them, for such belongs 
the kingdom of God. Apparently, the kingdom of God belongs to little children, to which I would say I have no problem with that. Truly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child, that means a small, tiny little child, shall not enter it. And he took them in his arms, and he blessed them, laying his hands on them. And as he was getting out on his uh, on his journey, setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Bad question. <laughs> you don't do something to earn an inheritance. It's a gift. And Jesus said to them, why do you call me good? Now watch, again, watch what Jesus is doing here. The guy's asking a bad question, so Jesus is, is really pressing into him regarding his understanding of the law. Why do you call me good? No one is good except for God alone. Now, funny enough, that's a veiled reference to Jesus' deity. Yeah, I am good, by the way. That's what Jesus is basically saying. And yeah, I'm God. That's what Jesus is saying. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And this guy has the audacity. Any of you out there listening, have you never told a lie? I mean, think about it. Think about it for a second. Go back into your childhood. Do you ever tell a lie in your childhood? Oh, yeah. Man, I was good at it. Um, That lying thing, I told some whoppers. And this is all before I was five. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Okay. So, uh, okay, here's the deal. I mean, John, did you ever steal anything when you were when you were a kid? Oh, of oh, course. Yeah, I did too. I've I I did the five finger discount at several stores when I was a kid. You know, when when the people running the store weren't looking, things disappeared off their shelves and m magically appeared in my pocket. I was a thief and a liar. This is before I was in before I was even in kindergarten. I was a thief and a liar. Okay, so this guy, um, <laughs> Jesus says to him, you know the commandments, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. Were you, complete, were you perfectly obedient to your parents? No. Neither was I. And not even close. Um, okay, and so, <laughs> and he said to Jesus, teacher, all of these I've kept from my youth. Really? <laughs> Wow, it's the this guy was on par with Jesus, wasn't he? He kept all of the commandments from his youth. I mean, him and Jesus were like righteous compatriots, weren't they? No. The problem is is that this guy is not recognizing his sin. Not recognizing his need for a sinner. Jesus said looking at him and he loved him. Jesus wasn't trying to zing him, he loved him. He says, all right, well, you lack one thing. Go sell all that you have. Why? Because this guy only thought about himself. Go sell everything you have and give it to the poor. And then you'll have treasure in heaven. Come follow me. And disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. Well, this is the complete opposite of what we're hearing from the word faith teachers, isn't it? I mean, apparently, wealthiness is next to godliness. 
And here Jesus is teaching something completely different. How difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. And Jesus said to them, children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Now, if we were to just judge based upon appearances, shouldn't we, con- shouldn't we assume that somebody who's wealthy is blessed from God and somebody who's poor is cursed from God? And Jesus here is kind of flipping that one on its head. And they, the, the disciples were exceedingly astonished, and they said to them, well, then who can be saved? And Jesus looked at them and said, well, with man, it is impossible. Salvation is impossible with man, but with God, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. And that's that context of there is saving people, saving even somebody as wretched as a wealthy person. Peter began to say to him, see, we've left everything and followed you. Jesus said, well, truly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last will be first. Good stuff. Great stuff. All right, we are going to switch gears again and we go from the Bible to a sermon that I, I'll give mixed reviews to, okay? The sermon we're going we're gonna to listen to today and review is from Carrie Shook of the Fellowship of the Woodlands. And um, the name of it is Beyond the Band-Aid. Beyond the Band-Aid. Now, the reason I picked this sermon, and I have a reason for picking all of the sermons that I pick. Sometimes it's just entertainment. <laughs> this is not about entertainment. This is about, I would say on the discernment scale, This comes into like a six or seven as far as difficulty and discernment. And I'll walk you through it. It lies in the fact of how he's using the scriptures. And I want you to pay real close attention. He's going to actually open up the Bible fairly early in the sermon. And he's going to start interpreting it on two tracks. Okay. And watch which track is the primary track and which one is the secondary track or the kind of the throwaway. And see if you see what's going on here. So I picked this specifically because it's a little bit more difficult. And it's just a great example of what not to do. So here is uh, Pastor Kerry Shook of the Fellowship of the Woodlands on um, Beyond the Band-Aid. I have in my hand a Band-Aid. We've all used one of these to cover up our cuts, scrapes, and blisters. But there's some wounds that Band-Aids just can't cover. Those internal cuts and bruises and scars that we tend to pick up as we go through life. And the problem is we usually settle for band-aid shallow solutions to cure these deep wounds. And it doesn't do anything to cover those deep internal wounds that require a deeper cure. Wounds like ruptured relationships where two people blow up in conflict... They explode in an argument, and instead of using the conflict to grow to a new level in the relationship, to a whole new depth, what do they do? They attack each other. They threaten each other. They launch missiles back and forth, and they argue over the same surface issues over and over again. 
They're just putting a band-aid on the problem. And then there are those marital strains where two people get so busy and focusing on the kids and the stresses at work that they never stop to communicate and find out how each other are doing. Okay, right off the bat, uh, what's the problem here? The problem is the problem he's presenting. He's presenting it as if this is some kind of a episode of Oprah or Dr. Phil, right? Um, you you know, the hurts and the boo-boos you've picked up along the way, you know, the, that conflict in your marriage and launching and the hurts and the hang and all. You know. huh. Is he using the law lawfully here? Is he using the law in such a way that its primary purpose, which is to show you your need for a savior and expose your sinfulness and your wickedness? Is that what's going on here? It doesn't sound like it sounds like more like a therapy. It does That's sound like therapy. therapy. My yeah. question right off the bat would be, is, is he qualified to be uh, it? Does he have a, a license to practice group therapy? All right, we continue. How they're really feeling, what's really going on in their marriage relationship. And they try to cover up their emotional emptiness with busyness, pretending everything is okay. They're just putting a Band-Aid on the problem. And then there are those emotional scars from the past. Rather than face it, we fake it by bare... Emotional scars. John, do you have any of those? I, I bet I have some somewhere. But you know what you know, I like to do with my scars? I like to show them off. The chicks think they're sexy. <laughs> Sorry. Carrying our feelings of inadequacy and workaholism and climbing the ladder of success. Really, we're just putting a Band-Aid on the problem. And then there are those work wounds. Those work wounds? I thought the only people who got work wounds were like the ones who like go into combat. You know, like the Marines, the, the Army. I did construction. You did construction? You got some work wounds? Oh, yeah. Don't you have like a partial finger going on there? Yeah. I, I almost sliced my thumb off. I almost, you almost sliced yourself. Yeah. So that's you, you, John. Did you put a band aid on your work wound? <laughs> <laughs> a little more band aid. Okay, all right, continue. Damaged emotions and relationships with coworkers, and no one gets gut level about it. We don't really get the truth out and talk about the problems at work. So the team never moves to a deeper trust because truth and trust go together. We're just putting up. Oh, no. Can you imagine being at work and not being able to have your team go to a deeper trust? I've heard that people can go to hell for that. Or at least get sacked. <sighs> Band-aid on the problem. And then they're fractured families. Where parents don't have the time or energy to really get into their kids' lives. So they buy stuff for... Did you notice his use of alliteration? The work wounds, the fractured families. And... Never mind. For them. They try to buy them off thinking that's going to cure a deep issue it's just putting a band-aid on the problem starting a new series this weekend that i'm calling beyond the band-aid it's probably the most important series on relationships that i've ever done is uh, what's the series on relationships oh relationships yeah. for correct me if i'm wrong but isn't a pastor supposed to preach god's word isn't that really his primary job is to actually open up God's word and tell you what it is that God was communicating. You would say Jesus. Oh, quit that. <laughs> isn't that isn't that the job of a pastor? Okay, yeah. so this is where it gets tricky because he's going to open up his Bible. Now, the question you've got to answer, is he teaching me really what this says? And the answer to the question, funny enough, is probably going to be yes and no. Okay? It's, gonna, it's a two-track thing that's going on, and I want you to watch it as we go.
We're going to learn how to move beyond the shallow life to the deeper life and a whole new depth in your relationships. Praise the Lord. I mean, that's what I need. In fact, we're going to look at a passage of scripture today where we see how Jesus always looked beyond the band-aid. It's in Luke chapter 7. Wait a second. Were there any band-aids mentioned in scripture? Maybe he's using band-aid as a metaphor. Let's continue. So open your Bibles there. And here we find in the story that... Okay, got to give him props. We're only three minutes into the sermon, are, the sermon are, and he's right into scripture. And he's not going to give us a verse. He's going to read it in context. So I got to give him props for that. And he's asking them to open their Bibles instead of look at their outline. Exactly. So there's, there's some kind of a, you know, there's some things he's doing right here. So we've got to give him credit. I mean, it's not like these guys are, you know, completely off. It's just, they're just off enough to cause problems. So let's continue. Jesus is invited over to the home of Simon the Pharisee. Now, Simon was a prominent but prideful religious leader who was known for throwing important dinner parties. And this was going to be the event of the year, hottest ticket in town. Everyone was curious to get an up-close look at this Jesus who was gaining notoriety with his teaching and his supposed miracles that he was constantly performing. When all the wealthy community leaders and the socialites were seated for dinner... The party was crashed. Everyone sat in stunned silence as the town prostitute walked through the door. And she walked right up to Jesus and bowed at his feet. And with tears streaming down her cheeks, she opened up a bottle of expensive perfume and poured them on Jesus' feet. And then she wiped his feet with her hair. Everyone looked at the woman and Jesus with critical eyes. But no one dared speak until Jesus spoke to the woman. And here's what he said. And Luke- now I'm going to stop here. This is a really good summary of that passage. And not only that, he's telling the story in a very compelling and engaging way. I, I got to give him props here. Okay. Um, I mean, I, I'm drawn in by the way he told the story at this point. It's very, very well done. Very polished. He did it from memory too, which is even more impressive. Okay. So... The problem is not that he's not reading the scripture. It's what he's going to do with it that's going to make the difference. It's going to make or break. Now, this is where it gets real dangerous. So let's continue. Luke 748, it's our key verse today. So would you stand in honor of God's word and just read it out loud with me. Help me out. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then the other guests began to ask themselves, who can this man be who even forgives sins? But he said to the woman, your faith has cured you. Go and be at peace. I want you to underline. Now stop. Okay, now this is where it gets interesting. We have just heard the gospel. And how did we hear it? We didn't hear it because he was proclaiming it. He heard it because he, we heard it because he was reading it out of the passage. This incredibly amazing story of this prostitute who comes to the feet of Jesus. And Jesus says to her, your sins are forgiven. Okay, now this is where you got to watch. That's the primary thrust of this story. That's where the gospel lies. Your sins are forgiven. The proclamation that even this prostitute, this woman who has slept with every guy in town for a shekel or two, is receiving from Jesus Christ unconditional forgiveness of sins amazing it makes you go man 
maybe even I have a chance at being forgiven. Right? Okay? That's that's the meat of it. The, the meat of the story is the gospel. Now, let's see what he does with this. The last phrase that Jesus said here in this verse, go and be at peace. That's what we really need in our relationships, peace. Stop. You see what he just did? He's reading this story, and the story isn't guiding his preaching. He's doing a series on relationships, so he's telling a story from the Bible, and now he's turning this into a relationship story. You see how that happened? It's 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 really quick. It's, it's a sleight of hand. It happens really quickly. It's easy to miss, but there it is. One second he's talking the Bible, the forgiveness of sins, this amazing story that he did a fantastic job of summarizing in a very compelling and engaging way. And what happens? He talks about relationships. Wow. The, the, the phrase I like to use is, this is an adventure in missing the point. We need a deep cure and we need peace. Peace from the conflict. This woman experienced peace from her past. She uh, hold on a second here. I, I I got. I have to throw this in just because. I mean, you can't talk about peace with God without talking about what the Scripture says about peace with God. Uh, you know. Um, hang on a second here. Uh, okay. Um, let me give you an example. Romans chapter 8. This isn't exactly the peace passage, but I'll, I'll find it in a second. It says, Therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to to the Spirit. Right? Let me f- pull up another passage here. Romans chapter 5. It, it I mean, that, that gospel lesson he just read can segue you into these other clear passages. How about this one? Romans chapter 5. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. This woman who was a prostitute, who knew that she was evil and wicked, what she had done deserves her hell. She comes in completely humble, and she does this amazingly beautiful thing, anointing our Lord's feet with expensive perfume. And this is perfume that was paid for with hooker money. Okay? Expensive hooker money, perf- you know, paid for this perfume. And what does she do? She points, she anoints Jesus' feet, washes his feet with her tears, dries his feet with her hair. She is a penitent sinner. And what does Christ offer her? Not a scolding, but offers her the free and complete pardon of her sins. Daughter, your sins are forgiven. He offers her absolution. That's the story. That's the key piece of it. That's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, I chose to know nothing among you except for Christ and him crucified. The gospel is the story of the scriptures. 
It's the center, heart, and substance of the whole thing. If you miss that, you miss the the meaning of the scriptures, which is why Jesus, he rebukes the Pharisees. He says, you diligently search the scriptures, for in them you think that you have life, yet you refuse to come to me to have life. Jesus is the life. The forgiveness that he offers us is the gospel. It is the life. It is the center. It is the story. There is no other story. So Romans 5, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. And more than that, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance. Endurance produces character and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. For while we were still weak like that prostitute, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one might dare to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners and prostitutes and adulterers and thieves and murderers and liars and cheats and gossips, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. I had to put that in there because you can't, you can't read a gospel passage that is so brimming with gospel and then miss the point. But he's going to miss the point. So I'm going to back it up just a hair, a smidge, so we can hear, we can hear uh, Carrie Shook in context. And by the way, everybody stood up in his church for one verse, the key verse. We read, we listen. But he said to the woman, your faith has cured you. Go and be at peace. I want you to underline the last phrase that Jesus said here in this verse. Go and be at peace. That's what we really need in our relationships, peace. We need a deep cure and we need peace. Peace from the conflict. This woman experienced peace from her past. She experienced peace from her anxiety and fears. She experienced peace for her broken heart. She experienced peace with God. She received a deep cure. She received God's peace. Now, this uh, the forgiveness of sins. Yeah. Okay. So watch this. He's he's at this point acknowledging the gospel message is there, but let's see what he does with it. Story is really the contrast between two people: the religious guy who didn't get healed. What? This is a story of a contrast between two people. He was into band-aid solutions, and the prostitute who experienced healing. Now, inside she experienced forgiveness. The Pharisee was self-righteous and didn't think himself a sinner in need of a savior. He was trying to save himself based upon his law-keeping. The prostitute recognized her sinfulness and her need for a savior. All right. I'm in the Pharisee. We see the two main reasons why we settle for band-aid solutions in our relationships. First, ignorance. Simon was ignorant. What? The reason why we put up with band-aid solutions in our relationships is ignorance? He, how is he getting this out of this text? In verse 39, it says, When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. Simon looked at the situation and he summed it up. He thought, Jesus can't be the Son of God. 
Jesus can't even be a prophet because if he was a prophet, he would know that the woman next to him is a terrible sinner and he would kick her out of the house. Oh, man, I, this is just a perfect setup for the gospel. Oh, can't you just see it? It's right there. It's teed up for him. All he has to do is hit the ball. <laughs> I'm serious. Ay, ay, ay. I'm sorry, but being a good preacher is like playing t-ball. It's not even like playing Major League Baseball. It's like t-ball because all you got to do is tee up, let the scriptures tee it up and then just hit the ball with the gospel. That's all you got to do. Hi, hi, hi. Okay, <laughs> here's this woman. He's telling us that she's this terrible sinner, right? He, this is what he's telling us. Ha, ha. Come on, tell us how we're all sinners and we need this. But Simon was ignorant. He makes <sighs> a totally wrong assumption because he thinks he knows what Jesus is thinking. But he no, he thinks he's righteous. He <laughs> doesn't. He has no clue. It's because he's looking at life from a band-aid level, from the surface level. <sighs> so close. So close. He was right there. He was right there. There it was. It was it was a fly on his nose. All he had to do was swat it. Rather than taking the time to look deeper, he has no clue what Jesus is thinking. And this is one of our biggest problems in relationships, ignorance. We assume we know what the other person is thinking and we don't take the time to ask. It's ignorance. We assume... <laughs> is that the lesson you're learning from that text, John? I, I, I don't see it. Oh, man. Assume we know what the other person's needs are and we don't take the time to find out it's just sheer ignorance see he he takes the story which is about jesus and his forgiveness and he turns it into something about me you know man sometimes i'll do something that hurts chris and i won't even realize i've done anything it's ignorance sometimes chris will do something to hurt me and she won't realize she's done anything Many of the relational conflicts today are a result of just ignorance. And we guys are the worst at this. We're so clueless at times. So ignorant at times. Even the guy who invented Band-Aids suffered from this relational cluelessness. This relational ignorance. I looked it up this week on the Band-Aid website. The true story of how Band-Aids were invented. So so the, the real meaning of that passage is relation. <laughs> it's an example of relational cluelessness. Isn't this an example of biblical cluelessness on Carrie Shook's part? Ugh. Back in 1920, housewife Josephine Dixon was a newlywed living in New Brunswick, New Jersey with her husband Earl. Whenever there's an Earl involved, you know there's going to be a problem. <laughs> and though married life agreed with her, housekeeping did not. Not that she didn't try. When Earl came home from his job as a cotton buyer at Johnson & Johnson, Josephine would always have dinner on the table. Unfortunately, she'd also have several cuts or burns on her fingers. Without an adhesive bandage, Josephine had no easy way of bandaging her own cuts. Earl had to cut pieces of adhesive tape and cotton gauze and make a bandage for each wound. This happened day after day. And day after day, Josephine needed more bandages. They were in a real bind. Finally, after several weeks of kitchen accidents, Earl hit upon an idea. Was it to take her out to dinner? No. <laughs> He's exegeting the story of Band-Aid. Because, I mean, we understand that gospel lesson that he was reading really demonstrates relational cluelessness. 
Was it to get in the kitchen with her and help her? Of course not. No, Earl sat down and prepared some ready-made bandages by placing squares of cotton gauze at intervals along an adhesive strip and covering them with crinoline. Now all Josephine had to do was cut off a length of the strip and wrap it over her cut. Wow, what a guy. He solved the problem. Well, you guys are clueless. Earl here is thinking, what a husband I am. I've just solved the problem that my wife's experiencing as she's getting cuts, bruises, and burns slaving away in the kitchen cooking all my meals. And now she doesn't have to worry. She's going to have plenty of band-aids to help her out. <laughs> I'm just glad for Earl is in the 1920s. This had been 2007. I think Josephine would have told Earl where to put those band-aids, don't you? <laughs> it's ignorance. Well, another reason why we stay at the Band-Aid level in our relationships is not only ignorance, but also arrogance. Okay, so he's now going to fish out the arrogance part of this uh, gospel story. I admit there's some arrogance there, but the arrogance has to do with self-righteousness before God. This is a story of a sinner versus somebody who thinks he's not. Let's see how this plays into our relationships. Simon assumed he knew what Jesus was thinking here, but he was ignorant. He had no clue. But Jesus knew what Simon was thinking. That's why I said this to him in verse 44. Then he turned toward the woman and said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head. But she has poured perfume on my feet. Simon's real issue was arrogance. No, his real issue was that he was a sinner and didn't realize it. He was just as much as a wretch as that prostitute. And the sad part is he thought he was righteous. Oh, man. Simon not only judged the woman, but he thought he was better than Jesus. He didn't wash Jesus' feet. He didn't offer Jesus water to wash his feet. In fact, in that day, washing a guest's feet was an essential formality. And if you didn't wash your guest's feet, at least you would offer them a bowl of water so they could wash their own feet. And Simon didn't do that. Not offering a bowl of water so a guest could wash their own feet was an extreme insult. See, Simon was basically thinking, Jesus, you're so lucky I invited you to my home. I decided I wanted you to come to my house so we could question you. Great point. He's actually on, he's on topic at the moment. This, this is a great segue to the gospel here. <laughs> oh, man. Will he do it? Maybe this time. And you're so fortunate to be in my house because I'm a prominent leader. I'm very religious. I'm very pious. I'm very intelligent. Everyone wants a ticket to my dinner parties, and I'm inviting you. Great point. Great point. He's, he, we're actually in the text again, right? He's telling us what the text means, he's, and he's actually he's spot on at the moment. This is great. He was so proud that he didn't even offer to wash Jesus' feet. And this gets to the core issue. The reason we're ignorant in relationships is always arrogance. Oh. Oh, another swing and a miss. Sorry for the baseball metaphor there, John. Oh, wow. (laughs) 
he was in the text. He was telling us what it meant. He was pointing out the sin of the Pharisee and his, and you could just, the gospel was just literally millimeters away. We were just seconds away from hearing it. And, and now we're back into relationships. This is why I said the sermon goes on two tracks on the one track. He's actually telling us about the text. And then just as he's, just as he's about ready to, to do it, to actually tell us the gospel. <sighs> It's like being reaching for something that you it's you could just kind of sort of touch it, but you can't quite get your hand around it. <sighs> it always comes down to arrogance. When I don't take the time to ask my wife what she's thinking, when I your wife isn't in that text. Assume I know what she's thinking, but don't really take the time to get into it and find out. That's just arrogance. It's more than ignorance. It's arrogance. When I think I know what her needs are without taking the time to find out what her needs are, it's arrogance. The real relational conflict source is not ignorance, but arrogance. So guys, we can't claim the ignorance defense. I know we would like to, but we can't claim the ignorance defense. Well, I don't really get it. I'm a guy. I'm clueless. Because ignorance is really a result of arrogance. It's okay to be ignorant about your spouse's needs, but it's not okay to stay ignorant about your spouse's needs. Is this a, is that gospel story about me and my spouse? No. You know, there's a lot of people there that are probably not even married that could really use the gospel at this point because it was just right there. It's he's just seconds away from it. <sighs> you see, I can be ignorant about my spouse's needs, but it becomes arrogance if I don't take the time and the energy and the effort to find out what her needs are. It's really arrogance. The real problem that keeps our relationships from going deeper is just arrogance. But to move beyond this ignorance and arrogance, I need extravagance. And that's what this woman displayed. <laughs> ignorance, arrogance, and extravagance? This is, uh, this is not how we use the Bible. All right, let's continue. Extravagance. In verse 37, it says, When a certain immoral woman from that city heard he was eating there, she brought a beautiful alabaster jar filled with expensive perfume. Then she knelt behind him at his feet, weeping. Her tears fell on his feet, and she wiped them off with her hair. Then she kept kissing his feet and putting perfume on them. She opened up a very expensive jar of perfume, probably her most valuable possession in the world. And she poured out the perfume, and as it splashed on Jesus' feet, it mixed with something even more precious, her tears of repentance. There, there's, listen, he's telling us about the text. He's, he just said the word repentance. Come on, come on, come on, come on, come on. Tell me how Jesus died for me, dude. He's going to offer me forgiveness too. Please, please, please. She was accused of being wasteful. She was accused of being extravagant. Wasteful she was not, but she was extravagant. Yes, she was extravagant, but she experienced extravagant forgiveness. She experienced yes, extravagant yes. emotional healing. Yes, yes, yes. Can I have that too? She experienced extravagant love. Yes, 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 yes. We're, we're in the text. We're back on track. And I'm convinced more and more that the only way to build rich and deep relationships. <sighs> this is like a football team that can only make it to the one yard line. You know, they never actually can cross the goal line. This is frustrating. <laughs> Oh, man. 
if he would just preach the text. He's he, every time he gets back on the text, he's there. He's there. You it, you could see it. You can hear it. You can feel it. It's right there. Then back to this relationship stuff. Ugh. Is extravagance. All deep relationships have to be built on extravagance. If I want to really connect on a deep level with my kids, it takes extravagant effort. I have to get into their lives. It takes extravagant creativity and energy and effort. And sometimes I just settle for ignorance and arrogance. To continue a deep and strong marriage relationship with my wife, it takes extravagant intentionality. We have to get out our calendars and really plan our dates and plan our getaway. Where does it say that in the passage? <sighs> we have to really plan our conversation so we can connect on a deep level in our busy schedules. We have to get very intentional about keeping our marriage strong and deep. I'm amazed at the intentionality it takes to build a strong relationship. For a relationship to last a lifetime, it takes extravagant forgiveness. Because two people who are imperfect are going to hurt each other. Oh, man. We go from biblical theology to pop psychology. It, it literally, it, it, it turn, he turns it on a dime. I've never seen anyone quite twist it that quick. You know, it's like he's teasing us with the gospel. I've got it and I'm not going to give it. And those are wounds that need more than a Band-Aid. I'm amazed at how it takes extravagant commitment, extravagant intentionality, extravagant... In- <sighs> law, 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 law. This is all law. Energy, extravagant creativity, extravagant forgiveness, extravagant love, extravagant effort to build deep relationships. I'm convinced more and more that this is the secret, the foundation for deep relationships, extravagance. And I'm not talking about extravagance on the outside. Where does it say this in the Bible? It doesn't say this in this passage. He was doing so well, so well. And now we are, we have fallen off the planet somewhere. We're in, in Oprah land. Talking about extravagance on the inside, extravagance from the heart. The deepest part of who we are is our heart. This woman extravagantly poured her heart out on Jesus Christ. The perfume that was so expensive. Here we are. We're back on track. We're back into the text. <laughs> Let's see what he does with it now. I mean, he's going to tease me with the gospel again, isn't he? I could just feel it. <laughs> it was just a symbol of her heart that was so precious and valuable. She poured out the perfume and her tears fell from her eyes as she was pouring out her heart. And that's what it takes to build strong relationships. Oh! Man! Oh, that is awful. That is awful, awful bad. Oh, I'm going to have to go wash my ears out with something. That was terrible. So you go to church and you get marriage counseling instead of Christ's forgiveness. Right. There's Christ's forgiveness in the text that he's reading. Every time he gets onto the text, you can just see it. You can feel it. It's almost like this this amazing gospel energy. It's right there. And then... And then he just yanks it away. But I learned that you need to have a date with your wife. That's good practical advice. Okay. okay. Extravagance. Putting all your passion, all your emotion, all your being, all your heart into a relationship. That's what it takes. And that's why we settle 
for band-aid relationships, surface-level relationships, because it takes extravagance. Now, the good news is... Why are they putting up with a band-aid-level sermon? Sorry. This passage shows us the three secrets to the extravagant or deeper life. What? What? (laughs) No, no, no. He's not going to do this. This passage shows us the three secrets to an extravagant and deeper life. Oh, man. And it's all about the deepest part of who you are, the heart. First, I have to examine my heart. Uh, Mine's deceitfully wicked and black and dark and full of spiders and sin. How about you, John? Pretty much the same. Yeah, I'm, I'm a sinner. I have to pray and say, God, show me what's in my heart so that I can see clearly my need. (laughs) Oh, man, sometimes I have to say, God, stop showing me. It's terrible. I can't stand it. The psalmist said, search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there's any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. He says, God, show me my heart so that I can see my need. This woman saw her need clearly, but Simon didn't see his need at all. Right, 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 right. He's back on track. We're back on track. Okay. Let's see, can we get the gospel from him? He's back on track. He's talking about sin, you know, kind of in a way. All right, all right. He had any needs because he had Band-Aid vision. (sighs) So close. He he doesn't know what the gospel is, does he? (laughs) I'm beginning, if he really understood the gospel, he would not be missing it. It's like watching a blind guy leading another blind guy and then watching them both fall into a pit. You're sitting there going, will they make it around? No. Yeah. Saw that one coming. But he wanted to do a relationship sermon series. series. Yeah. So you just got to find text to help, yeah. help you along with that. It doesn't matter what the text says. Right. It, it, see, because ultimately that text is really about relationships. Yeah. Not really, but oh, man. Let's continue. He was looking at life on the surface level. He never took the time to look deeper. He always looked at people on the outside and he made judgments. And if you looked at Simon from the outside, you would say, Simon has it all together. He's wealthy. He's a prominent member of society. He's successful. He's religious. He's pious. Simon's got it all together. But Jesus looked right past the band-aids, right into Simon's heart. And he saw a cold, dark heart. Right. He's a sinner. Okay. We're, we're kind of bad. I, 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 I refuse to get excited at this point. <laughs> He's let me down way too many times. That was desperate. He was more desperate than the woman because he didn't realize how desperate he was. She's pouring out her heart extravagantly because she realizes what a great need she has for me. Right. The need for forgiveness because she's a great sinner. You don't realize your need, but you're needier than she is. Yeah. yeah. As a sinner, that's true. Come on, come on, come on, come on. Just... <laughs> He's not going to do it, is he? You have just as much of a debt as she does. Yes, yes. But you don't even see it. Okay. That means you have the greatest need of all. Okay. You're blinded by your pride. You have Band-Aid vision. Uh Uh-huh. And today, Jesus never has Band-Aid vision. He looks right past your successes and right into your heart. And he sees those feelings of inadequacy. What? Uh, My feelings of inadequacy? What's that? And he sees those fears and those anxieties and those worries. How about my sin? (laughs) Does he see that too? I mean, wow, he can see my anxieties and my fears and 
feelings of inadequacy. Is that my big problem? I feel inadequate. Today, Jesus looks right past that facade of happiness on the outside and he sees right into your heart and he sees your hurts and your wounds that you cover up that you don't want anyone else to see. How about my sin? He looks right past image and he looks right into the heart. He looks right past our outward appearance and he looks straight to the heart. And that's why we need to say, God, search my heart. Show me my heart because when I see my heart, I'll see my real need for him. (sighs) He doesn't know what the gospel is. I think he actually doesn't get it. When I see my need for him, it's the first step to healing. What? (laughs) The only people who ever get healed are those who admit they need healing. The only people who ever get forgiven are those who admit that they need forgiveness. Okay, kind of. I have to examine my heart and then I'll see my need. But not only do you need to see your need, I also need to see my value. Huh? See, this woman didn't see her value. She saw her need, but she couldn't grasp her value until Jesus spoke to her. Really? Okay, so she did something wrong because she didn't recognize her value. And Jesus still speaks value into our hearts. He wants to speak value into your heart today. This This is not the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is something different. This is something very different woman saw her need, but she couldn't see her value until Jesus spoke. A couple of weeks ago, I was speaking at a conference in Seattle, and I came across... Uh, apparently, we're done with the text now for the moment. I was a t-shirt shop, and there was a t-shirt that really grabbed my attention. It was this one. It says, Jesus loves you, but everyone else thinks you're an idiot. And I just cracked up. I love this shirt. <laughs> I know some of you want to wear this home, don't you, you know? And it wasn't a Christian t-shirt shop. There's some other t-shirts there I couldn't bring on the stage. But I bought this one. And I thought of that. And I thought, you know what? There's some truth in this shirt. If Jesus loves you, it doesn't matter if everyone else thinks you're an idiot. If Jesus says you're valuable, it doesn't matter if everyone else says you're worthless. There are a lot of voices out there. This is so close and so far. It's, uh, wow. Out there that talk about who you are. There are a lot of people out there that tell you who you are. But there's only one voice of truth. The voice of Jesus Christ. You know, he actually forgave the woman of her sins. He thought she was a sinner. Jesus actually didn't skirt the issue of her sinfulness at all. In fact, he hit it straight up, dead on, by forgiving her sins. The gospel, he kind of skirts around it and then pushes it off to the side, and he's replacing it with this pop psychology psychobabble. Apparently, you have feelings of inadequacy. So Jesus didn't say to the woman, you're an idiot. The disciples said, you're an idiot, and Jesus says, no, you're cool with me. That was not the text. No. No, okay. That was uh, option A, not B. (laughs) And you gave the test. (laughs) All right, moving along. See, Simon looked at the woman and he said, trash. Jesus looked at the woman and he said, treasure, valuable. Uh, no, no. She, he said sinner. And Jesus said, forgiven sinner. And the sad part is, is that Simon didn't recognize that he was just as sinful as that woman. Otherwise, he would have behaved far differently with Jesus. Precious. Beautiful. 
doesn't matter what anyone else thinks about you. What matters is the voice of truth. There are a lot of voices that talk about you. But there's only one voice of truth. So who are you going to believe? They did a study and they found that we speak about 150 to 200 words a minute. Some of you have gusts up to four or 500. You know who you are. But they also in the study found that we speak privately to ourselves, self-talk, 1,300 words a minute. That means we're all nuts talking to ourselves all the time. So the question is, what are you telling yourself? What are you feeding your mind? Are you feeding your mind what everyone else says? Are you feeding your mind what God says about you? You've got to be kidding me. Jesus is solving the problem of bad self-talk? Because the voice of truth says you're a child of God. If you're a bel- uh, it's in Jesus Christ. I'm a child of God in and through Jesus Christ. It's about him and what he's done for me. Believer, you're a child of God. You're righteous in Christ. Totally, completely, unconditionally loved. Totally whole. A child of God. That's the truth. Why do I feel like this guy's puffing up my my ego you know you know what i'm saying here so are you going to believe the lies are you going to believe the truth and then thirdly expand my heart you know paul said that he was the chief of sinners and then he said that the things he didn't want to do he did and the things he wanted to do he didn't do that's some pretty bad self-talk isn't it yeah yeah i wonder if he struggled with feelings of inadequacy I examine my heart, expose my heart, and then I expand my heart. I have to start seeing beyond the band-aid, and I have to be like Jesus and look past the outward appearance and see people from the heart. And to do that, I need to make three choices. First, I have to start loving over labeling. Choose loving over labeling. Now, Simon was a labeler. He was a religious guy, and (sighs) religious... I can't believe he's pulling this out of this. He's missing the gospel. It's it's right there. I mean, it might as well have a red bullseye target written, you know, or circled around it in the text. It's staring him dead in the face. And we're talking about relationships. Being a lover instead of a labeler. Oh, you've got to be kidding me. These people are the best labelers. We love to label people. Well, he's not near as spiritual as I am. You know, we label people. Yeah, the, the only reason why somebody would think that is because their pastor isn't preaching the law to them right. I, at our church, you know, you know what I see in my church? Just a truckload of sinners. Me being the chief of them. We all, we all come to church and we, you know what we do? The first thing we do, we confess our sins. From the word go, actually, from from the words in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, we actually invoke the one true God in the name that he chose to be known by. And uh, so in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, we immediately launch into a confession of our sins. And so what do I see around me? A whole, I don't see anyone who's, do you know anybody who's more spiritual than you are, or more, less spiritual than you are? I don't even know what it means. We're all there to receive the forgiveness of sins. The law is the great leveler. We're all on the same level. And that level is complete spiritual beggar. We're all spiritual prostitutes. We're all spiritually poor. We have nothing to offer God. We're all sinners there uh, to receive from God free forgiveness and pardon for sins. 
there's no point in thinking you're better than somebody else because there's no room for it because we all just confess that we're sinners. Well, we judge people. Religious people are the best labelers. He looked at the woman and said, trash. Jesus looked at her and said, treasure. Now, I also have found that religious people are the best at giving Band-Aid solutions. You, know, you pour out your heart to someone and they say, oh, that's an easy one. Just let go and let God. And then they walk away and you're going, what? What was that? Oh, I, I've experienced that. But is the solution he's offering any different than let go and let God? Or here are 10 things the Bible says to do. Go do them and you're going to be happy. It's great. And you're thinking, what's that? Well, what about the three secret keys to having a better relationship that he just told us about in this text that aren't there? And that may be true. But if someone's heart's not in it, they're just a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal, the Bible says. If there's no love in it, there's no compassion in it. No caring in it. And many times we religious people are the best at giving Band-Aid solutions. Oh, just do this, this, and this. Your life will be great. You're just not doing what God says. Just do these things. And we have no compassion or passion. And we don't connect. And we wonder why we don't. Well, there's a reason why people who are Christians give such glib and stupid answers. It's because that's what their preachers are telling them from the pulpit. And they're just parroting what they're hearing. Maybe I'm being too cynical. Don't go to a deeper level just tired of band-aid solutions and i'm tired of labeling people we're so good at labeling people we look at someone and say oh he's successful we look at someone else oh he's a struggler we label people based on what they wear what they drive we label people based on their outward appearance not once in scripture do we ever find jesus labeling anyone based on their outward appearance he always looked beyond the band-aid and straight into people's hearts let's see jesus woe to you pharisees you brood of vipers you whitewashed tombs he labeled them as uh, maybe I'm reading that passage wrong. You, you who kill the yeah, whitewashed sepulchers full of dead men's bones. You know, I don't care what you wear to church. I could care less what you wear to church. Just put clothes on, but I could care less what you wear to church. <laughs> doesn't matter what you look like on the outside. What matters is what's on the heart. What's in your heart? Uh, sin. Lots of it. <laughs> Lots and lots and lots and lots of sin. You, when you walk in this place, we're all the same. We're all fellow travelers, fellow strugglers, but we're looking to the one who's perfect. Yeah, how about sinners? Sinners. Sin- Why is it that he keeps shaving off the hard edges of the law? You know, it's as if he doesn't. He doesn't want to wound anybody with it. Wouldn't you? Know, wouldn't want to hurt nobody with that thing. <sighs> we're looking to the one. Who is showing us how to live the deeper life. No, no, no. Jesus is not showing us how to live the deeper life. He lived the perfect life for us and is offering us forgiveness of sins. Jesus Christ looks past the outward appearance. The band-aid smiles. The band-aid possessions. The band-aid pretending, and he sees your heart. And he knows what's in your heart. That's why you can come to him and give him your heart. Well, I have to choose loving over labeling, and then choose asking over assuming. I have to stop assuming. I know what my wife's needs are. You know, he he just railed about simple, stupid, glib solutions. The, uh, you know, let go and let God. And apparently his three simple solutions, loving over labeling, and now the second one, whatever it is, those aren't as banal as let go and let God. 
absolute twilight zone moment again and start asking I have to stop assuming I know what my so we need to stop assuming and start asking see that this loving instead of labeling assuming asking instead of assuming isn't that as banal as let go and let God I, I think it is my kids needs are and start asking and getting into their lives start asking instead of just assuming out of arrogance in fact some of you husbands need to go now, this is decent advice from a psychologist home today and take your wife by the hand and say, honey, tell me what your dreams are, what your goals are, what your fears are. How is he getting this out of this passage? It's, you know, it's, it's Oprah. Oprah's in the passage. (laughs) Oprah's teleporting her and she's putting his, her, her ideas in his brain. (sighs) What your desires are. And after she gets up off the floor from fainting, you're going to get somewhere. You're going to move to a whole new level. You know, Kerry Schick is the guy who gave that really girly uh, 007 sermon. Remember that? I, I feel my estrogen levels going up as I'm listening to this thing. And then I have to choose design over default. I have to get intentional about extravagance. If I don't design extravagant... Rel- are any of these words in this passage of Scripture, are any of these words... No. 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 Not one of them. ...relationships, then I'll fall into default, into ignorance and arrogance. I have to get really intentional about this year, about getting into the lives of my kids as they're moving into new stages in their life. And I'm already designing a plan for getting into the life of my kids to connect with them because they don't want to get into my life. I have to get into their life. And it takes extravagant effort, energy, and creativity. So I designed that plan to do that, to get ready. Sure to sound biblical, though, because he actually read the Bible. You know, he was sitting there, you know, with the Bible open and reading. I mean, it, you, you would think this was actually, it's a biblical sermon. You know, you, you would leave there thinking, wow, I just learned the Bible. And you really didn't. For this next level that they're going into. I have to have a plan to stay close and strong and a deep relationship with my wife. That's great psychological advice. Where is it in the text? You need a plan. I I just can't overemphasize the intentionality that it takes. And sometimes I just settle for ignorance and arrogance. I I would go for intentionality of actually preaching God's word. Because what you're giving me is just ignorance and arrogance. Because I don't have the extravagant love I need. That's when I say, God, give me the extravagant love to design a plan and really fulfill this plan. All right, I'm crawling out of my skin. I'm so frustrated. To build deep relationships. There's no way you can have a deep family relationship unless you expose your heart. And the... Which verse does it talk about exposing your heart so that you can have a deep relationship? Where does it say that in the Bible? I forgot. What was this passage about again? Uh, well, it was the prostitute who came to Simon the Pharisee's house. She crashed the party, poured perfume on Jesus' feet, wet his feet with her tears, dried everything with her hair, and Jesus forgave her of her sins. Oh, it's about forgiveness of sins. The passage itself is. Uh, you know, it's, it's, it's right. Not, it's not about ha- having a better relationship with your wife. No. Oh, okay. <laughs> but, it's, it's very confusing. Right. Yeah. Words are great. You know, you sound cynical, John. <laughs> Last week, Chris and I took my oldest son, Ryan, to college for the first time. It's been a tough week for us. You, know, you need to pray for us. It's been a very difficult week. Yes, you need to pray for him for more than just this. And the night before we took him to college, I took him to the mall to get some clothes. And I was just thinking we we're going to have a guy's night out at the mall. And if you can have a guy's night out at the mall. And 
Again, he's mixing his metaphors. This is why I feel like my estrogen levels are increasing and rising as I'm listening to this dude, Castrati. That's an oxymoron, isn't it? That didn't really, yeah. So, in fact, when I walk into the mall, I just lose all oxygen and just get tired out. You know, there's something in the mall that I just can't really get into. But we, we went to, we're on the way to the mall, and Ryan's very mature and very reflective. And, and on the way, he said, Dad, I can't believe it's my last day. And, oh, I just choked up. And I'm a guy, so I was holding it in. And, and guys, have you ever tried so hard not to cry? It's just hurting your throat. You know, they're like, ah. And, no. And you're just trying to think of something else. I'm going, yeah, it's a nice, nice weather on your last day. You know, Ryan? It's like, what's wrong with your throat, Dad? You know? And then he said, Dad, I just want to thank you for doing a great job raising me. And then I lost it. And I started to cry. He started to cry. And then we sucked it up in about 10 seconds, you know? <laughs> the next day when we dropped him off at college, he gave me a, a note and he said, I want you and mom to read this on the way home. So on the way home, I handed it to Chris. She started to read it and tears just started streaming down her face. But I didn't think much of that. She's been crying for two years over this. So it was like, <laughs> this is normal. And she said, Carrie, you can't read this because you'll have a wreck. So, and I got home and I read it. And it's an 18-year-old kid thanking his mom and dad. It's now one of our most prized possessions. And I thought, what a great reward. And I've made so many mistakes with Ryan. I've messed up so many times with my kids. And by God's grace to get that note, it's just God's grace. This would be a great thing for Dr. Phil. I mean, Carrie, you should you you actually have, are gifted in telling these psychological self-help types of stories. You absolutely should start your own television program focusing on this. Just give up the, the pastor part because you're not telling us what the Bible says. The rewards are so great that are undeserved. And there are times when you reach out and you reach out to your kids, mom, and you do so many things for them and you never get a reward, never a thank you. There's so many times when we do things to really get into our kids' lives and we get hurt and our hearts get broken. And some of you are facing a broken heart right now. But it's the only way to live. We've got to open our hearts. And when we open our hearts, we risk rejection. <sighs> Where does it say that in the Bible again? Open our hearts. But the rewards are great. And everyone in this room has had a broken heart. And some of you are facing a broken heart right now. Some of you just gone through the pain of divorce and your heart has been shattered. Just know this. There's a God who holds your heart. When it's all said and all done, he will hold your heart and he will heal your heart. And he's the only one who can. <sighs> so close. So close. And yet, so far, I mean, that was another gospelist gospel presentation. I mean, he, the text itself, all he had to do was preach the text. The text had the gospel sitting right in, and he had to go and mess it up by bringing in this girly relationship stuff. Nah. <laughs> I, I got to go into the woods and um, <laughs> pee on a tree and bang a drum or something. Man, that's terrible. Ay, ay, ay. <laughs> anyway, I hope that, you know, I thought that was a good example of how not to use the scriptures. You know, the reason I picked that particular sermon wasn't because of the girly stuff, but really because of the fact that, you know, he had a text that there the gospel was. It was literally staring him dead in the face. And what did he do with it? He was more concerned with his agenda because he wanted to do a relationship 
sermon series that he missed the whole point of that passage. That passage wasn't about relationships. It was about Christ's forgiveness of this sin, sinful woman and Christ's forgiveness for sinners even as bad as you, as bad as me. Oh, so frustrating. All right, we're at the end of our program and would like to remind you, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported, which means that we depend upon you to help us pay our bills so that we can continue bringing you this important radio outreach. You can support us by sending in a gift to Fighting for the Faith at Post Office Box 791, SJC, California, 92693, or you can go to fightingforthefaith.com and click on the Donate button. Until next time, uh, if you would like to uh, email me, by the way, you can. Talk back at fightingforthefaith.com. Let me know what you thought of today's program or want to interact with something that we said. You can do so. Talk back at fightingforthefaith.com. And I will not be in the studio tomorrow. I'm in Chicago. So uh, we will see you all next week. Until then, God bless. God bless.